Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back, and it's back in person. After two years running our events virtually, we're off to the stunning waterfront resort of Coronado, California, from June the 6th to the 9th. The event combines Woodmac's Solar Summit and our Energy Storage Summit. It'll feature a day on solar, a day on solar plus storage, and a day just on storage, giving you the chance to explore every aspect of these fast-moving technologies. Joining Woodmac's experts will be leaders from utilities, commercial and industrial developers, and state and federal policymakers. Hear from Mary Powell, CEO of Sunrun, Kelly Saba, CEO of Strategic Management Group, Adam Detrick from Jinko Solar, plus many, many more. Visit woodmac.com slash events to see full details and register your place. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the crisis caused by the shortage of energy right now and the transition to low-carbon energy in the future. I'm Ed Crooks. Joining me on the show again today is Melissa Lott, who's Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm good, Ed. Um, hope you had a good holiday weekend. I know we had fun over here. I had a very, very quiet holiday weekend, which is exactly the right kind to have, I think. Uh, what did you do? Anything interesting? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's interesting, but I enjoyed it. I um, did some landscaping and gardening, including uh, mowing my lawn with our new electric lawn mower that we finally pulled the trigger on when Lowe's had a special and put them all on sale. Um, it was very nice. And I will say, not having like the fumes and just like not having to go get a gas can filled up is very nice. So that is really, that's good information. I've just been thinking about buying a lawnmower and wondering about going electric and wondering, is it the right thing to do? But you would recommend it. Oh, totally. And I would recommend paying the extra, I think it was like 80 or $100 if you have that in your budget to get the one that has the little motors on the wheels so you can push the button and it actually drives itself. You just kind of walk behind it instead of having to actually push it. Um, I felt... Like it was a splurge. I told my partner, I was like, we'll just call it my birthday present. And uh, we got it. And yeah, it's it's fun. It's awesome. It's zippy, though. You got to like slow it down if you're not ready to run by the lawnmower. Fantastic. Cool. Oh, well, that is a great tip. And uh, <laughs> thank you very much for that, as well as uh, thank you for joining us today. So also joining us on the podcast today, you probably know a very important part of the podcasting industry is appearing on each other's shows. And I'm delighted to be able to carry on that tradition today. Uh, a few weeks ago, I appeared on Joseph Mikert's Energy 360 podcast, which is produced by the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and now Joseph's very kindly agreed to return the favor by coming on the Energy Gang. Hi, Joseph. Thanks very much for joining us today. Ed, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to, to have you on Energy 360, and I'm more than pleased to be reciprocating today. Absolutely. So as it's your first time on the show, I think it'd be good if you could tell listeners a bit about yourself. So can you talk a little bit about the CSIS and what you do there? Yeah, more than happy to do so. I'm the director of our Energy Security and, and Climate Change Program. CSIS is a national security and international strategy think tank. So most of my colleagues are deeply interested in what's going on around the world, how that relates to the U.S.'s national security and uh, economic competitiveness strategies. You know, CSIS has a long history of working with the Department of Defense, the intelligence community on matters of national security. And our energy program has been around for a few decades. It started uh, during the oil crisis. And, and for a long time, its focus was maintaining access to enough energy and, and maintaining energy security through uh, both domestic and international strategies. And as it has grown up and as climate risk has become a matter of greater concern, we added uh, climate change to the title of our program. So we're now officially the program in energy security and climate change. And our work is focused across a, a wide variety of, of 
workflows and research directions. But the fundamental idea is how do we maintain energy security uh, and have a plan that is responsive to the risks of climate change? So how do we get to net zero and how do we do that in a way that works out in America's strategic interest? And how do we do it in a way that maintains energy security internationally? And I'll just say, Ed, uh, was it just a couple of weeks ago, Joseph? I was sitting between you and my former colleague, Julio Friedman, at a lunch at a conference we were at. And I'll say it was really interesting to be in that discussion where it was like energy security, climate change, all of it meets and be going back, you know, with the three of us there. So that was a it was fun to see that intersection and certainly timely right now with everything going on. So your title there at the CSIS is your director of energy security and climate change. Yes. What career path led you to that route? Uh, how did you end up with that job? A series of, of, of really uh, good fortune. My career has been defined by good fortune. I started uh, my academic training as a scientist. In fact, I was a climate scientist uh, studying the global carbon cycle, trying to understand if we want to hit a you know, particular temperature target, what's the, degree, what's the extent of allowable carbon emissions or the net, what's now called the carbon budget. And in particular, my research was focused on if we detect that there are changes in the way that the climate system is absorbing greenhouse gas emissions, as you probably know, every year about 50% of what is emitted, not on a molecule by molecule basis, but on a mass basis, is absorbed by the oceans or, or by uh, plants and, and ecosystems on land. This has done a lot to moderate the effects of, of human-caused global warming because the carbon that loads into the atmosphere doesn't all reside there. It, it gets captured in natural systems. But there's a concern that the effects of climate change will slow those processes or alter them by changing wind patterns, by changing the way ecosystems work. And I did a lot of research trying to understand if we could have new observational systems that would allow us to predict those changes or detect them faster, would that allow us to make better decisions about climate change mitigation problem? And uh, when the opportunity came to, to work at CSIS, because the previous director had moved on, I jumped at the chance because I think a lot of the challenges that we face are deeply related to America's position in the world and how the U.S. can maintain a, a leadership stance on not just climate, not just on technological innovation, but on how countries should govern and how they should relate to each other. All those things are deeply tied to the climate mitigation problem, and I wanted to pursue those. And as you say, we are at a really important moment, I think, right now, in terms of the way we think about all of these issues, about the energy transition, about decarbonization of the energy system, about energy security, all of that's been kind of thrown up in the air by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and everyone in a really kind of fundamental way reassessing what they think about all those issues and about what we're going to have to do in policy terms to both defend energy security and cut emissions. And that's really where I wanted to start the conversation today. And the specific thing just been focusing on is the issue of what European Union is doing and European Union's plans to stop using Russian oil, gas, and coal. Energy, of course, is massively important to the Russian economy. It accounts for about two-thirds of Russian exports right now by value. And Europe is massively dependent on Russian supplies, particularly for natural gas. The dependence that the EU has on Russian energy is a huge problem for them. If they want to punish Russia economically, they really need to hit Russian energy exports. And that's very difficult to do while businesses and consumers in Europe are absolutely reliant on those imports from Russia. Just this week, we've seen a very interesting example of how reliance on Russia 
kind of restricts Europe's freedom of action. The EU on Monday night announced a ban on oil imports from Russia to take effect by the end of the year, but it's not a total ban because about 90% of Russia's oil exports to Europe will be stopped. So you could say that's a big deal, but there will be some significant exceptions. Hungary and a few other countries that are supplied with oil through the southern leg of Russia's oil pipeline system will still be able to keep on getting their oil from Russia. And while Europe's moving on oil, a ban on Russian gas exports to Europe is not coming anytime soon. That would have disastrous impacts on Europe's economy, on European consumers, if they tried to stop using Russian gas immediately. Joseph, I know you've been looking at this and thinking about this plan and looking at it. What do you make of it? Do you think it's going to work? Is this the plan that is going to give Europe the independence from Russian energy that it wants? That's a tough question. Ed. I think that the I'm sort of looking at the plan in two ways. At the highest level, I think it demonstrates that Europe is taking the energy diversification challenge really seriously, right? The commission is acknowledging this is a big project. It's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to involve not just building a bunch of solar panels, but building a bunch of solar panels and a bunch of wind farms and a bunch of energy storage. And so I think that it's showing a, it's showing that there is a real understanding that this is uh, going to be a complicated transition project. On the other hand, I think it's showing you two things. By taking the project so seriously, Europe really is demonstrating a political desire to disengage with Russia on energy terms. And I don't know that that's going to come. I think that's sort of a one-way street. That's even regardless of what happens with the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, it feels to me like this is Europe getting real about an, uh, a, a diversification away from, from Russia. It introduces a challenge in that Russia, Europe also wanted to decarbonize quickly. And that is, there are going to be trade-offs with the cost of decarbonization and uh, eschewing cheap gas from Russia. And so we're, we're seeing now is a, a bunch of energy experts and bureaucrats trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to do that? I don't know that it's fair when a lot of the responses I've seen have been taking sort of one element of the plan and saying, oh, unrealistic, no way they can build that much solar or no way they can get that much green hydrogen. But if you view it as a portfolio and you take seriously the, the intent behind the project, I think it shows you that Europe is not slowing down on decarbonization uh, over the long term. They're really intent on, on reducing greenhouse gas emissions toward net zero. They're strengthening their laws to do that where it makes sense. And there is a real political energy at the top levels of European leadership on how to do it. The questions then become, how much is effort going to get allocated to these different elements of the plan? And how much do the member states going to be willing to commit, both in terms of financing and policy change, to actually realize the plan? You talked about a trade-off between decarbonization and getting off Russian energy. I guess what a lot of people would say in Europe is that there aren't really exactly trade-offs or the two things kind of go together, that they reinforce each other. If you get off fossil fuels in general, that helps you get off Russian fossil fuels. But but you think there are some trade-offs. What are those? I think the trade-off is like uh, is, is actually between uh, rapid and inexpensive decarbonization and issuing cheap gas from Russia, right? So if you're not going to be buying and using cheap gas from Russia in peaker plants, for example, you either need to burn coal, and there's going to be some countries in Europe that are going to continue to burn coal for the next few years as they make like pretty substantial new infrastructure investments, 
or you need to be buying LNG off of the global marketplace, which is introducing higher costs. So it's not that there's a trade-off in the long-term decarbonization. It's just that the plan that you're using to decarbonize has to change. And uh, regular access to pipeline gas from Russia just has to leave, is, is not going to be part of the plan anymore. Right. See what you mean. So, Melissa, what do you make of this repair EU plan? Have you been impressed by it? Do you think Europe's on the right lines? I mean, I think it's not unexpected, this outcome of saying we're going to accelerate decarbonization. We're going to be, you know, moving away from dependence on Russian fossil fuels, given everything that's going on. Two things pop to mind when I read through it. You know, you can talk about exactly what the strategy is. But when I read through it, I think about first that we're talking about 2027 for most of this stuff, and that's five years and five winters. And I, I just... A couple winters in with high prices, that's going to be tough. Like energy insecurity, energy poverty is real in Europe. Um, and so I just, depending on how mild or not those winters are, back to Joseph's point, how much more coal are we going to see burnt and how much more tolerance for the use of these fuels are we going to see? Like that's something I wonder about. The second thing I think about is just how important these the EU's plans for actually fast-tracking renewables developments are, so getting the permitting processes done. If they really are going to pull this off, like that matters a lot. If they're even going to get halfway down this plan, the fact that, you know, right now permitting for renewables projects can take years, um, can actually put projects at risk by how long it takes. And so the fact that the EU has already said, hey, we're going to have these go-to areas, we're going to have fast-track permitting, we're going to ask our member states to do that. Um, up front shows a real understanding of all the different angles of, you know, the aspects of how you get renewables online quickly. If they didn't do that, I would be much more pessimistic about their ability to actually achieve what they're saying. So if I may, how much do you think that this is actually just mm -hmm. a wake up call that Europe's fit for 55 plan was going to need these changes anyway, right? If the, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported this weekend, it takes five years to permit a wind farm in Germany. If you look at the Repower EU plan, the, the extent of renewables in 2030 is 5% higher in the power mix than it would have been under Fit for 55, which was designed before Russia invaded Ukraine. So I'm sort of wondering and asking, how much is this a waking Europe up to the reality of its pre-existing energy transition goals and forcing a conversation about permitting, streamlining, finance that had to happen anyway? Just as a quick footnote on that, uh, Fit for 55, for people who might not know it, that was the EU's previous energy plan, right? Which was essentially, that was very much a climate-focused plan rather than an energy security-focused plan. And that was about the 55 there is what a 55% reduction in emissions from a baseline level by when? By 2030? Before Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe was trying to achieve the Fit for 55 plan, which would have success would have been a 55% emissions reduction by 2030 against baseline year. And what we're seeing here is in Repower EU is a new plan focused on energy security with those same targets in mind, and in many cases, accelerating some of the renewable stuff. And, and what my question is, is how much is this new energy security imperative forcing a conversation that had to happen anyway? regarding siting and permitting and the extent and, and the, like the practical reality of a rapid energy transition? I think it's a great question. So I agree with you and not being in the rooms, I can only speculate. 
But what this is doing, I think, is similar to what happened when we shifted from a decarbonization, 80% reduction type of target to net zero is the target. It clarifies a lot of things about what we need to do next. And this is actually saying, you know, all that stuff that we were still debating and we can go into, I don't know if y'all saw the New York Times article by a load of IPCC lead authors that said something like, you know, we can, we're wasting time on these climate debates. Like the next steps are clear. Let's get it done. So we have said that we need to build massive amounts of infrastructure, but we haven't actually leaned into what that means in terms of permitting, what that means in terms of siting. Um, there was another article I can remember that you guys might have read, which is what from Defenders of Wildlife saying, hey, we care about a lot of stuff, but everything we care about is affected by climate change as well. And the question they said is, how do we balance renewable energy development with actually these species that we really care about? And there was an article they did on the desert tortoise in the Mojave and saying all this solar power, we want to build it out, et cetera. So I think your point is really, it's really an important one. Because it's saying, you know, we are being forced and Europe is being forced to deal with the fact that if you want to do this quickly in the face of what's going on with Russia, you need to do the stuff you already needed to do if you wanted to reach net zero. You just have to do it today instead of giving yourself this illusion that you actually can debate it for many more years. I don't know, Ed, do you disagree? I mean, do you think that's right? Or do you, I mean, <laughs> you're the European in this group, so I'm curious. Although no longer an EU citizen, I should point out. But yeah, I know I think it's a really <laughs> interesting way to look at it. And I think it's a really important point, which is one way to think about this whole issue, I guess, is to say that people often say the fundamental problem with tackling climate change is it's a long term issue. It's something that uh, you need to do now in order to solve problems that are threatening you decades in the future. And that's just, in general, for humans as a species, something that it's difficult for us to get to grips with, and perhaps particularly difficult for us in democratic systems with short uh, horizons between election cycles and so on. It's very hard to get governments to focus on the long term, to think about those things. The positive side in a crisis, if you like, the silver lining in what is obviously a very grim situation in so many ways but what it does do is it focuses minds, it makes everyone pay attention to the issue of energy and getting energy policy right in the short term, in the next few years, as you say, Melissa, in over the next five years, the next five winters, rather than thinking about it over five decades. And I do think then there's an opportunity there to push us towards better outcomes, to make more rapid progress towards outcomes that are good for the short term and for the long term, because we can all see what the immediate crisis is. And it's just harder to put it off and to say, we'll worry about that some other time. I, I mean, I do think the kind of things you're talking about, Melissa, as you say, permitting, approvals, contracts, getting infrastructure actually built, absolutely crucial. That is the number one problem. It's not really lack of the right technologies. It's not really lack of financing. The money's there. It's just being able to turn the money into concrete and steel and glass and fiberglass in the ground. That's what needs to happen. And that's still very difficult. But I think it's realistic to think that it'll become easier because of the debates we're having right now. Well, and two quick pickups on that one, Ed. So what you're saying right there at the end about money and availability of money, there will be more money available when you can actually give someone a definitive timeline and it's shorter rather than longer. Because how many organizations, how many funds can really wait out some, we might build this in the next three years, five years, eight years? I don't know. I mean, that really does limit. And we've seen that through transmission grid buildouts or attempted transmission grid buildouts in the US, but we've seen it around the world. 
So the other thing I want to pick up on is this idea of having to act today to prevent stuff that's going to happen in several decades. I really like the analogy around this, around like putting, you know, the frog in the pot with the cold water and heating it up over time. That's what we've been doing. And right now, this crisis is actually making it so that when we're looking at the pot, the the water is boiling and the urgency is there. We're like, whoa, as opposed to being like, oh, it's getting a little warmer. Eh." I mean, we're already being affected by climate change today. It's already affecting our health. It's already affecting our communities. It's already affecting so many different aspects of our life and not in a good way. And so the idea that, you know, we're not on a slow path to a boil, but actually we're getting a shock of heat into the system. You know, that's what we're seeing right now. It's just not coming from where we thought it was. It's not an extreme storm. It's actually energy security and dependence on Russian fossil fuels that's accelerating and making us move faster. No, I think that's a that's a fantastic analogy. That's a great way to think about it. And as you say, climate impacts, we are seeing them all the time. We're seeing, for instance, the massive heat waves that they've had in the Indian subcontinent and so on. Those things are here and pressing and real, but energy security is often even realer than all of those. And if you can't get the lights on and you can't heat your home in winter and you can't keep businesses running, those are the things that politicians really care about. And that's why we're going to get action, I think, on a lot of those things. Now, it's not always, as we've been discussing, it's not always action that helps with climate change. And I want to come on to that issue in the moment because I think there's uh, one of the biggest points in this is this issue of Europe needing to buy more natural gas from elsewhere. For as long as Europe is a consumer of natural gas, if it's not replaced it with hydrogen or with renewable generation or whatever it might be, if Europe's not going to buy natural gas from Russia, it has to buy it from somewhere else. It has to buy it on the world market, basically, and mostly as LNG, liquefied natural gas, gas which is cooled to a liquid form, put on a tanker, shipped anywhere around the world. And this is something I know. Joseph, that you've been looking at and thinking about, which is this uh, question of the kind of the knock-on effects of this in terms of Europe needing to buy more gas from around the world, bidding up the price. So we've seen LNG prices absolutely rocket, pushes up the price of gas for everybody around the world. And for some countries, that's a real problem, right? If you are, uh, I know in particular some of these middle-income countries, perhaps they've been trying to burn less coal, they've been building gas-fired power plants, they've been looking to import gas because that's a way to cut their emissions and also a way to improve local air pollution and so on, but generally to put them on a better path environmentally. And then they find that the price of that gas is not at all what they expected it was going to be, but it's going to be you know, five or six or eight times that. That's causing some real problems. It's forcing people to go back to burning coal again. It's forcing some people to look to Russia to make alliances and do deals with Russia because Russia still has got a lot of gas. And if you can get hold of that gas and you're a big gas consumer, that's going to be valuable to you. So how do you think about that aspect of what Europe's doing, Joseph? Well, I mean, when, as I say, when Europe is out there in the market, basically being the buyer with the biggest checkbook and being able to kind of put the money down and say, hey, we need the gas, we're going to get it. And you lower income uh, countries if you are unable to get it because you can't afford it, that's just tough for you. That causes real problems, doesn't it? I think there's a sig- significant risk there. You know, as as you said, Ed, uh, Europe's going to work very hard to get off of of Russian gas. There's also, you know, there's there are two players in this game. Like Russia is increasingly uh, 
stopping the sale of gas to to European countries, right? Uh, you know, then like first Finland, uh, then the Netherlands. And I think maybe Denmark was reported over the weekend uh, for refusing to pay in rubles, and so they're not going to be able to buy Russian gas anymore. Um, so the, you know, it, there is a real uh, risk of shortage, as Melissa has said, on for Europe. And what the plan is to ameliorate that risk or to hedge against it is to buy a lot more LNG. The, Europe is doing a lot of diplomacy with Qatar, with other exporting nations. The EU and the US signed an agreement for higher levels of sale to come from the US. Um, we're still seeing whether that agreement actually leads to like contracts and, and new LNG capacity. But the reality is the global LNG market is relatively tight. And now Europe is willing to spend a lot of money to buy up any cargo that it can get or can get diverted to Europe from other places. As we were talking earlier, the plan to get off Russian gas involves a lot of risk for Europe, right? Two or three winters from now, how, how much buy-in is, is there still in Europe? But it also, you know, the, the, the plan to buy up a lot of LNG off global markets creates real risk both for other LNG importing nations, Japan, Korea, or other nations in, in, in North Asia, like they have a cold winter, how do global markets actually respond? And for countries that were looking to build LNG uh, terminals as part of their development plan. So we're sort of, I was looking at reporting last week for Pakistan, right? They, they wanna, you know, the, the opportunity there is like sort of gas or coal, and if gas is going up 83% in, in price, then it's the choices are well we continue to burn coal or we make pipeline deals with Russia, and so I, you know it, these things are we're just going to have to deal with the fact that Europe's a big part of the global economy. Uh, as they shift their energy strategy in really significant and meaningful ways, it's going to have reverberations throughout the world. We should be aware of what those potentially are and look for mechanisms to uh, resolve them for the other developed large importing countries. There probably should be some, you know, some meeting of large importers and exporters to make sure that if an emergency happens, there's mechanisms for, for doing reallocation without in, introducing incredible cost. And for developing middle income countries, I think this further uh, accentuates the need to have better models for clean infrastructure finance so that we can build the, prop, the, the stuff that they need to ensure access and at the same time have a long-term uh, plan for net zero. Because this really comes down to the very fundamental issues about climate and energy and global equality, doesn't it? That you could see an analogy maybe with when you get developed countries talking about not financing fossil fuel projects in the developing world, middle-income countries. So in other words, they're saying, you can't develop fossil fuels. We are not going to pay you to do that. But when fossil fuels are needed, we're going to go out there in the market and buy them up because we can afford it and take them away from you. And that's really quite a bad uh, look for the rich countries, I think. And presumably doesn't at all help if we're trying to kind of build global consensus on tackling climate change and trying to get everyone on board to be moving in the same direction towards reducing emissions and solving on a global basis what is a global problem doesn't presumably build much trust and solidarity between countries if that's, this is the way the rich countries are behaving. 
Well, and Ed, on that point, I mean, I think that's why there was so much coverage back in November around the COP, around that announcement that, what was it, um, it's an $8.5 billion partnership with South Africa, and it was like the US, EU, I think France and Germany were out front of it, and the UK. And they were saying, you know, here's the model. We're not just going to say no, we're actually going to provide financing for building out these things and helping to move away from coal. Like that's a productive conversation as opposed to, I'm going to take all the fuel in the market and figure it out, y'all. Um, and we're not going to finance the things you need. Like this was, I know at the time there was a lot of discussions about how this was hoped to be the model for how we move forward. You know, it's a productive conversation about how do you support economic development and energy for development without compromising on climate goals, which have all the negative you know, repercussions if we don't actually read our, reach our targets. But I've got a question for Joseph around this uh, geopolitics and security of all this. Around the stuff that you were just saying about like Pakistan and, and pipeline deals and all of this, I'm wondering what you see as kind of the major shifts we might expect in the next few years as Europe takes lots of certain types of gas out of the market and other countries are left with how do we keep the lights on and not have our prices skyrocket? I mean, I certainly see what you're saying and what we've discussed before on the show around increase in coal use and that being highly probable in big parts of the world, especially in the shorter term. But if this extends for two, three, five years, do you see any major tension points that you're keeping an eye on? Yes. I, I think that we, you know, speaking from a sort of like I work at a U.S. think tank and, and our goal is to, you know, maximize how the world works in the favor of the United States to some extent. Most of the conversation around decarbonization and to some extent energy systems planning and almost everyone whose career we we admire in that world has come up at a time of increased globalization and increased cooperation after the soviet union fell we had decades of increased economic integration engagement and planning and the and the like the plan for decarbonization um grew up in a period where we expected more cooperation. We may now be entering a world where there's going to be less. There will be more contest for influence. Um, you know, the, the lines that you might roughly draw are going to be uh, U.S. And, and Europe and sort of like the team, team liberal versus China, Russia, especially if they get more integrated because of the economic sanctions that Russia is facing, not just on energy, but on, but on all elements of its, of, of its economy. And part of that, one of the ways that contest I, I suspect will play out is in the developing and middle income countries as they're trying to build infrastructure and meet growing demand and the models that are gonna be useful for doing that. And energy will be a piece of that contest, right? Is it going to be um, focused on decarbonization? Is it going to be focused on particular energy sources? What are the priorities? And what are the tools and mechanisms that are going to be available to countries as they look at these development challenges? And one of the things I would love to see more work on, not just from our group, but from energy analysts and policy scholars across the board, is how do we create a um, package of like technical assistance, financing, and business models that are going to be appealing in these in in middle and developing countries that will provide opportunity for economic growth, energy security in a low carbon way. Because I think we're going to have to be able to develop that stuff. And we're going to have to be able to sell it in a world where there are antagonistic countries who are selling different packages of things. What do you think this is going to mean for COP27, we've got the next 
UN climate conference. COP27 is coming up in November in Egypt, Sharm el-Sheikh. Is this going to be a conducive environment for making progress on that climate finance you've been talking about? Are we actually going to see better chances of making progress with some of these things at those negotiations because of this new world we're now in? I think it's going to be a little bit more front and center, not just because of the, of the host country, but also the fact that global energy markets are really tight, prices are high, that is causing real economic pain and challenges to development in middle and, and lower income countries. I mean, it's like easy for me to gripe about gas prices in the United States, but you know, I, it's, I'm not choosing between a, a holiday drive and, and dinner. And a lot of people, unfortunately, have to make such choices. So if we want to see continued progress, my argument is we need to be prepared to deal with and provide solutions for countries that are facing those challenges and feel them a lot more acutely than, than we do. Yeah, I mean, completely agree on that. Like, the answer is not, sorry, it's tough. The answer is like, here's sets of solutions. You know, we're trying to move towards solving this global challenge that all of us have a role in solving. And it's not even the holiday drive versus dinner, right? It's the like food versus other absolutely essential things. So in the US, we talk about like food versus medication, you know, fuel versus food. Like we talk about that here, but in other parts of the world, it's even more acute. And it's food or not having food, you know, and you've already stripped down a lot of other basic needs. And so I think coming to COP with sets of solutions as opposed to, uh, let's ignore that elephant in the room and just like keep on keeping on as if, you know, this isn't happening, that's going to be a key to success. And a point you brought up earlier, Joseph, about this idea of increasing globalization, I think we're all following, you know, the discussions about, you know, what this whole crisis means and what Russia's invasion of Ukraine means in terms of are we moving away from that? We discussed it, you know, the other week on the show, Ed, you know, what does it mean in terms of supply chains? What does it mean in terms of all aspects of the energy sector? I think the jury is still out on some pieces of this, if I'm honest, like how far matters a lot, how far we move away from globalization, if it's a step or 15, or even, you know, one, two, three, four, five, there's big differences between those different steps. And I, at least I haven't read anything and I haven't been in any discussions where I felt like someone really has the crystal ball of the future, because I think the crystal ball just isn't there. We just don't know yet. And so many of these different dynamics, back to the how cold is this winter in different parts of the world, you know, these things will all affect those alliances and the future movement of like how this sector develops. Um, but I think all that's going to come into play at this next COP. And it's going to be, you know, a very intense set of discussions. Excellent note to end that section on, because I want to move on, if I can, to the last topic I want to be talking about today, which is the question of the environmental ecological impacts of investing in all this infrastructure that we've been talking about as being necessary. Melissa, you were just talking about solar power and the desert tortoise in the Mojave and the very active debate over the consequences of putting these huge solar parks out in the Mojave Desert and the threat to the tortoise that they pose and the question of whether that is a justifiable risk to take in terms of the impact on those animals. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you will know that this is absolutely one of our big themes, certainly one of my big themes, which is that if we are going to 
do the things we need to do to tackle the threat of climate change and to reinforce energy security, we need to build a lot more stuff. We need lots more wind and solar power. We need transmission lines to connect generation to the customers. We need energy storage. We need nuclear and hydrogen carbon capture because not every technology is going to be suitable for every purpose. We need new mines to get the metals that we're going to need for all the batteries for the stationary storage and for the electric vehicles and so on. And when we build stuff, there's always an impact on the environment, whatever you're building, and renewable energy is no exception. Solar farms threaten tortoises in the desert. Wind farms kill birds. We talked a few months ago about um, geothermal development in Nevada and threat to rare toads um, that are posed by that. Whatever we do in terms of renewable energy has consequences. And often what happens is those consequences are used as reasons to delay development and in some cases stop it and stop it happening altogether. I'm personally very much inclined to lean on the side of allowing stuff to go ahead and trying to smooth the path towards development because as I've said I think the need to invest in this new infrastructure is so urgent we can't allow considerations excessively to stand its way and clearly then when we can mitigate ecological impacts we should do that but they shouldn't be the things that always stop developments going ahead but i'm interested in in your views really for both of you and i know melissa takes a slightly different view from me on this but joseph what do you think how do you view these questions about wildlife and ecological impacts of renewable energy it's an area where because of my training as a scientist i'm a little i try to be humble in evaluating what the impact is going to be. It's a complicated literature as far as I understand it. I think some of what we're going to learn as we accomplish the energy transition, we're, we're going to have to do by experimentation, right? That if we are, if we use old models for like ecosystem preservation or endangered species preservation as we have in the US, it's not clear that those are going to be immediately applicable to, well, should we build this solar farm or not, right? A lot can stand in the way. It can create a lot of bureaucracy. But we also have to have a system that is cognizant of climate change being one of the biggest threats to biodiversity or ecosystem composition as it exists now. And then we're trying to prevent that. I don't have easy answers for how to manage those trade-offs. I think there are ways to make policy goals more clear or, or make um, the, the mechanisms by which we adjudicate potential conflicts uh, uh, shorter and, and more less deliberative and more um, predictable, make the processes by which we adjudicate potential conflicts less deliberative, more predictable. Th those are the things I think we need to, to figure out. And then it falls to elected officials, it falls to market actors to help figure out you know, what are, what's the set of preferences that society wants to express? So Melissa, you are traditionally cast on this show as the defender of the tortoises and the toads. I like tortoises and toads, but go on, go on. <laughs> like, well, yes. you know, to what extent, and I, and I feel like what Joseph has just been saying is something pretty close to my position, which is we are clearly still learning and we need to learn more about wildlife impacts but 
what we don't want to do is uh, impose a lot of uh, unnecessary bureaucracy and restrictions on infrastructure development that are going to stop us building the things that we need. Yeah, so I think the three of us are actually really tight on the spectrum of responses to these sets of questions around infrastructure build-outs and the trade-offs. Um, what I find interesting is that amongst the environmental community that I do interact with quite a bit, the conversation has shifted, and it shifted pretty significantly in the past few years around what Joseph was saying, which is the cost of inaction. So backing up for a second, we often talk about the cost of the energy transition and leave out the cost of inaction. It's the same thing here in the environmental community where it was like, well, building that out is going to harm these species. And now the narrative to what I was talking about at the top of the show is saying, if we don't do this, <laughs> this these creatures, these ecosystems, like they're going to be destroyed. And so, you know, actually, it's the whole compromising on certain things and finding that balance between building out renewables, building out zero carbon energy, and actually protecting the broader ecosystem. Because the cost of inaction for these ecosystems is massive, absolutely massive. And this is something that I learned mostly about through my colleagues at the Columbia Climate School and around campus, Ruth DeFries and others, you know, telling me about, okay, these are the effects on these different pieces of things. And here are the domino effects when this part of the whole overall chain goes down in these ecosystems. So I'll say, you know, that cost of inaction is really important in this discussion. I think that overall, this goes back to stuff we were talking about earlier around infrastructure build outs and kind of what is practically achievable is what I'd say. So let me explain that. Let me unpack that a bit. We often get focused on scenarios that are cost optimized. If you could build it out this way and I'm saying, no, what's practically achievable? And I mean that in this discussion in the sense of, okay, where can we repower existing sites with new facilities, even though the solar might be better if you went, you know, 100 miles to the west of where you are right now. But you know what? We've got transmission lines. We've got already impacts in that area. You know, we can take that coal plant, repower it with nuclear, put some solar around, take some wind turbines. Like, where are practically achievable win-win type of solutions? When it comes to offshore wind, you know, where can we actually build out those huge turbines? What can we do with new technologies to fly in those offshore wind turbines and put them onshore so that we can actually build out and have more capacity with less limp, uh, land impact? And I'll say, you know... Overall, we need to mitigate the impacts that we know about. We do need to mitigate them. If we can do things, you know, I'm thinking about it. I went to UC Davis in California, and there were these beautiful little toads that crossed, you know, through an area when they, they migrated during the year. And they said, you know what? We're going to build a road there. We're going to do that. But we're going to build a tunnel for the little frogs and little, I think they were actually technically frogs, not toads, because you don't have to choose. It's not an or situation. It's actually an and. We can create a pathway that will preserve the lives of this animal while also building the road that we need. So I feel like there are more of those kind of win-win opportunities or at least mitigate the impact opportunities um, than we've really leaned into right now. And so it comes down to me where we've gotten to a practical place where we need to move to net zero. We need to move there quickly, not just because of climate change, also around energy security concerns. These things all play into each other. And so how do we do that? And yes, there's a cost-optimized you know, route that involves a supergrid and all these other things, but it's not getting built. So what do we do to get things built? That's the questions I go back to. So I'm not giving up on the tortoise and the toad. <laughs> I'm saying mitigate what we can, but don't let that keep us from doing anything. As the energy transition goes from something that we are like sort of no, no needs to happen to something that is happening, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with, you know, and adjudicate these conflicts, right? Not putting at risk vulnerable species is a laudable and, and reasonable thing to be asked. So, 
And, and so we need to have mechanisms that allow for protection of, of individual species, biodiversity generally. We need to be observant of what is happening, right? So how do you weigh for an offshore wind farm, which creates you know, artificial reefs and by certain measures improves biodiversity against potential uh, bird kill for migratory species or for large marine birds. How do we weigh those things? It, it's a difficult question. Everybody's going to come to their own answer. The best we can do is try and take the best observations we can and set up structures that will allow us to figure out these trade-offs in a reasonable way. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And as you say, it's very clear we are still learning and have a lot more to learn. I do think where I would say there's been one of the real issues is that the renewable energy industry has not always helped itself, that the industry has not always done everything it could in terms of finding these solutions. And as Melissa was saying, it's actually fantastic that there are lots of solutions now. Uh, starting to become available. There are very basic and simple things, the tunnel for the toads, or I was looking at um, a solar farm that has a fence around it, which is uh, which has got holes in it, and the holes are small enough for a tortoise to get through, but not big enough for a coyote to get through, and the coyotes, the, which uh, are predators on the tortoises. And so it can help with that. There are people planting plants, the right kind of plants that the tortoises like, around solar farms and so on. There's a whole lot that can be done there. Then there are more sophisticated technologies. You can have lasers or ultrasound and other types of bird scarers to scare birds away from turbines. Really interesting um, case. I don't know if you saw back in April, there was a wind turbine operator that was fined for killing eagles. And I think the number was about 150 eagles were possibly killed by this company's turbines as bald and golden eagles. One of the consequences of this case was that the company agreed to invest in various kinds of protective measures, technologies to stop eagles getting killed. And that uh, package had a total cost of $27 million. Now, it's unclear how effective that package is going to be, but across a whole estate of wind farms across the country, an extra cost of $27 million is not a lot. If that's all it takes to put the bird scares in place, put in place things that repel eagles, to put in place um, arrangements where you can actually slow or stop the turbine from going round when an eagle approaches so that it's not going to get hit by it, which is absolutely doable, and then you clearly lose the power generation at that time, but that this company said was all included in that $27 million cost, so it obviously doesn't happen all that often. That all seems absolutely worth doing, and clearly just as politicians, civil society, regulators need to understand the necessity for developing a lot more clean energy infrastructure. The clean energy industry also needs to understand its own responsibilities and needs to be addressing its own impacts in whatever way it can and adopting all these technological solutions because apart from everything else, that is going to be the way that it's going to have that social license to operate, to use the often quoted 
phrase, the renewable energy industry is going to be able to make those investments, develop those projects, if it is doing everything it can and being seen to do everything it can to mitigate its impacts. Yana, say within all this, the other thing that we need to touch on, because we talked about ecosystems, we talked about, you know, toads and birds and eagles and all of that. We also need to talk about communities that have borne the brunt of the impacts of energy infrastructure build out in the past. And it's not just have it be a foregone conclusion that they're going to, you know, take the brunt of it moving forward and have that real conversation. And back to what we were talking about earlier, it's time for a real conversation about that to find a path forward, to say, like, we need to build these things. We need to build them really quickly. So how do we practically move the ball? And cost-optimized pathways are great, but practically achievable ones are what we need now to achieve our emissions reduction targets and keep the lights on and prices low. So what is that practically achievable pathway? If we were on video, you could have seen uh, Joseph putting his thumbs up to that answer, <laughs> saying uh, how much he agrees with it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. I, I fully agree with Melissa, right? I think you know these issues have to be taken really seriously. Environmental justice, how the benefits of the energy transition are distributed amongst different communities and different members of society, how we're going to relate to the natural world as we increase our footprint in this new way. But I also think that there's a positive story here from a, from a climate perspective, which is we're moving from a world where the energy transition is largely something that happens on computers in a cost-optimized sense to something that is happening in the real world. And it's our charge to make sure that it happens to the best positive benefits that it, we can accumulate and to minimize the downside. Great to end on that point of agreement because we do just about have to leave it there. But before we go, as usual, it's time for our free electrons, individual things that we've brought in personal to us that we've been interested in in the world of energy and beyond it over recent days. Uh, Joseph, what's yours? So I'm not buzz marketing, but uh, my program at CSIS is doing some hiring. We've had uh, several of our colleagues move on to green pastures and high-ranking government positions, and now we need to to restaff. And I read over the weekend uh, this new book, uh, Talent, by the economist Tyler Cowen and Daniel Gross, who is uh, big in the VC world in Silicon Valley. The book's about how do we identify talented individuals? How do we find people who bring energy and a creative spark to their work and who will be future leaders? Highly recommend the book. It's, you know, it's a relatively short read. It's interesting. It sort of toes the line between a literature review of, of what we know about how, what makes people thrive and, and how to identify them and the sort of, sort of threads the line between the science and the art of finding, identifying, and, and nurturing talent. And um, it's got some really interesting practical anecdotes. A lot of the book focuses on how do we identify sort of an e economist speak underpriced talent amongst women and people from different cultures. So we think about tackling a global energy transition. I think that's probably something that the whole of the energy community could do better at. And so I'm, I'm excited to start applying some of these tools in our, uh, in our hiring decisions and in our personnel management going forward. And uh, if I can leave you with one thing, perhaps the most interesting and, and novel uh, takeaway from the book is one of their suggested interview questions, which is, what browser tabs have you got open at the moment? Which I think is, you know, cuts through uh, the, the preparation that job candidates have done and really puts them on the spot in a way that allows them to show who they really are. That is the, that's a great question for the new world of online interviewing, I guess. 
So mine, I'm just now looking to see whether I'd get hired. I, I'm, it's basically all facts that I've been trying to look up as we've been talking, desperately using Google to substitute for my memory. So perhaps... Uh, it's a signal of diligence, Ed. Like that, <laughs> you, know, you, you, you don't want to be I'm misquoted. You want to be on point. Fantastic. Excellent. I will spin it that way when I ask that question. That is a really interesting thought. Better, I guess, than asking people, you know, what is your greatest weakness? Which has always seemed like... <laughs> that I work too much. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that the answer exactly. that people give? I don't know when to stop working. <laughs> yeah. Answer does, number one. <laughs> exactly. So no, it does sound like a really interesting book. I'm going to check that out. So um, my free electron is, uh, is Bitcoin, Bitcoin and energy, which I spent last week sort of going down the rabbit hole on, you know, what does Bitcoin mean for renewable energy? Is it good or is it bad? Spoke to a lot of different people about it. And people often with very, very strongly contrasting views. And actually, I listened to a really good podcast, another podcast I'd like to recommend. Uh, it had a colleague of, of mine on it, um, Ben Hertz-Sharkle, who's Wood Mackenzie's head of Dridge, was in a debate with um, Lee Bratcher, who's the president and founder of the Texas Blockchain Council. And they were on a podcast called The Blockchain Debate, which I would um, urge you to check out. Just really good, very, very sort of um, intense, well-argued debate on both sides very, very strongly held convictions. So my colleague, um, Ben, it was basically saying Bitcoin is a very bad thing and you should not think that it's positive in terms of developing renewable energy. And um, the, from the, um, the Bitcoin Council, no, the Blockchain Council rather, making the, the opposite argument. My feeling is, and I think it was well worth uh, spending all this time um, as I was doing sort of listening to and talking to people about it, because I actually feel I've got to a, an answer on this. Um, I think where I've landed basically is that what you think about Bitcoin and energy depends entirely on what you think about Bitcoin, and maybe not the most dazzling of insights. But if you believe that Bitcoin is going to be an important part of the global financial system, then the question is not, should we have Bitcoin or not? It's given that we are going to have Bitcoin, what's the most cost-effective and environmentally friendly way to mine it? And then very, very clear that the answer is going to be with variable renewables or some kind of zero carbon power. And if it's variable renewables, then with a flexible load so that when the generation is not uh, available, you don't run your Bitcoin mining operation seems absolutely clear that's going to be the sensible way to do it. But if you don't really believe that Bitcoin is an important contributor to the world economy or has any kind of redeeming social value, if you think it's basically just for speculators and international criminals, then it's kind of irrelevant what energy source Bitcoin mining uses. It's not a good thing. Whatever happens, it's, it's essentially a social waste of energy. And so I think the idea that you should think about Bitcoin as kind of worth having because it supports the development of renewables, I think is misplaced. I think Bitcoin, if you want Bitcoin, if Bitcoin is good, then Bitcoin's worth having on its own grounds, on its own merits. It's not worth having just as a way to support renewables and as a potential variable load that could help balance the grid and so on. And I think that argument, which sometimes people kind of slip towards, 
I think is not really justifiable. So anyway, I thought that was very interesting. And I still, I guess then my problem then is I still don't know really where I come down on the meta question beyond that, which is what do I think actually about Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin and energy? But I'm kind of making progress towards that because as I say, I do feel like a result in my own mind what I think about the energy question specifically. Well, when you're developing your next energy product, Ed, do you think you're you're going to be using um, uh, excess generation to mine Bitcoin or make green hydrogen? Well, exactly. That seems to me to be the fundamental question. And to me, on every uh, rational basis you can think of except one, the answer is you use it for green hydrogen, which has lots of social uses, is um, much more important for decarbonization and so on. The one fundamental problem with green hydrogen is it's very expensive still. It doesn't exist in terms of production at scale. Bitcoin, absolutely proven business model. It's happen- mining is happening at scale all over the world. People are making money out of it right now. It's proven technology and we can see that it works. And so that's the kind of, it's the leap from Bitcoin with all its dubious issues attached to um, doing something which is uh, probably got a much better long-term future, a much more important role in the long term, like hydrogen, making that leap is tricky. So as I say, I think on energy grounds, I think the, on energy grounds, I think the debate is clear whether Bitcoin is really a useful technology or not for the world. I'm going to leave that one open. And I know there are people who are very uh, committed partisans on both sides of that argument. And I feel like I don't really want to pitch into that right now. So I'm just getting a message from Joseph saying, RIP Ed's mentions, which I think is very likely true. (laughs) (laughs) Don't at me, as they say. So uh, changing the subject swiftly. Uh, Melissa, what's your free electron? So in addition to like mowing the grass um, and doing some other landscaping activities now that, you know, we had some cold snaps in the winter here in Texas that kind of put everything into a dormant slash slightly hobbling state. And now, I mean, the entire yard is back with a vengeance. Um, it's it's in full force. It's a very happy garden at this moment. Um, but in addition to that, I took some time to rediscover an old friend in a book and discover a new friend. So the old friend uh, and I... Won't, it would take a long conversation to describe what, what led me to find this one on my bookshelf. But do you guys know this book, Capitalism in America, some Alan Greenspan goodness? Oh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting book um, recommended to me by a, a colleague and friend. And I was rediscovering this whole section about creative destruction and the invisible forces and the visible forces um, behind it. And I think it really applies to a lot of the stuff we do in energy. So in this, they describe you know, the invisible forces of the market and the visible forces of entrepreneurs and companies and kind of what roles each has to play when you're talking about creative destruction. It's some really good writing. Um, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with everything or anything in it. I'm just saying it's really good and thoughtful writing. And so I rediscovered that old friend of a book there. Um, uh, that, that does sound good. So I was just going to say, I, a couple of weeks back, went back to the source of all that, and I was reading Adam Smith, Wealth of, Wealth of Nations, yep, yep. which actually is fantastic and is great on a lot of that stuff. And is just, I mean, again, really nicely written and Mm -hmm. just sort of amazing when you think a lot of that stuff he was kind of inventing for himself for the first time. I mean, came out of a certain intellectual climate, but a lot of it he was inventing 
and is often sort of misunderstood and misrepresented in the present day. And people have some kind of wrong ideas about what Adam Smith thought about a lot of things. So that's also highly recommended. Anyway, but sorry, I'll stop interrupting. Well, what was what was your other book? No, so point on this one. Good books stick with you, um, and it's just you know good books and well thought out concepts that are articulated well, like it sticks in your brain. You'll think about them, you know, years and years and years later. Oh, where did I read that? Let me go pick that one up. But I'll say the new one is um, this book that we're about to have a book launch on, but it's called Oil Leaders. I don't know if you guys know uh, Ibrahim Amoana, um, but he was an advisor to four different Saudi oil ministers during the period of, I think it was the 1980s through, through quite recently. And the idea is saying, okay, if you look at oil, and you look at OPEX and OPEC Plus's choices, and you think about, you know, what do different leaders actually consider before they make moves? Um, that's a bunch of what is covered in this book. And so I was, you know, working my way through the first about third of it just over the weekend, just to discover it. It's, you know, my background is mostly in power and decarbonization and certainly not OPEC. And I just found it very interesting to have this, I mean, what is termed an insider's account of four decades of Saudi Arabia and OPEC's global energy policy. And really it's, you know, what has happened over decades? How do leaders make decisions? And interesting point, I know it came up the other day on the show about um, Elon Musk buying Twitter or something and all that stuff, but it's the idea of how do leaders actually use media and use social media in terms of, you know, informing themselves actually and communicating with each other in addition to communicating around market stuff. So something that is three steps out of my day-to-day -day on my own research, but I found it really interesting. I haven't finished it yet, but those were the two the two books, an old friend and a, a new friend I discovered over the weekend. So those are my free electrons this week. That does sound fascinating. Um, he's been, as you say, right there in his career, absolutely at the heart of mm -hmm. oil and policy in the biggest oil producer on earth. Yeah, I'm sure... He will have some fascinating stories to tell. Now, I look forward to reading that myself. I'm definitely going to track that down. So um, that's all for this week. Many thanks, Melissa, for joining us. Ed, it's been great to see you. Thanks for having me on again. Joseph, it was great to be able to continue our conversation from the other day and to have the three of us just bat around all the stuff that's going on in the energy sector right now. It's a lot. Yeah, Joseph, thanks very much indeed also to you for coming along. Um, hopefully we can get you back again in the future. Yeah, many thanks for having me. It was really, really fun talking with both of you, uh, Melissa and Ed. Learned a lot from both of you over the years, and it's a real honor to be at the table. Thank you. Uh, also, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for the subject we ought to be covering. We're on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then... Goodbye.